Hey everybody, official screenwriting podcast number 16, I'm Adam Levenberg. Real quickly, I want to talk about Girls Season 2, Episode 8, because out of nowhere, Hannah gets OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. She starts counting, she starts, you know, turning her neck to the side in, you know, multiples of eight, and then she has to do it the same amount of times on the other side, and it comes from nowhere. It, it really felt to me like a very special episode of sitcoms back in the 80s and 90s when some huge problem would drop in the lap of these sitcom families, and they would deal with it and resolve it and it would be done with by the end of the 22 minutes uh, remember on saved by the bell how jesse started using speed got a huge addiction and then overcame it in 22 minutes i mean it was ridiculous so it felt to me a little bit like that what i had no idea was just how far they were going to take this ocd because to me it was like they presented this really extreme version of the disorder immediately but i didn't realize how much further they were going to take it so I, I, my feelings about it are sort of mitigated by just how far this arc goes in episodes 9 and 10. I still feel like in a quality show, which Girls is, with really intelligent people behind it, um, they should have just dropped something into episode 6 or 7. Because I don't believe that she's ever talked about it. And we also get some huge backstory that this is something she really dealt with as a teenager. Um, so, but again, she talks about anything and everything that goes on in her life. So I can't imagine how this big part of her past never got thrown out there. Um, well, I mean, of course we know it's because they hadn't thought of it probably and they want to introduce a problem and this is how they've done it. But again, they could have, you know, barring a mention of it somewhere else, they could have shown the beginning of this disorder presenting itself in episode six or seven. The cool thing about girls though is that they have literally taken the character, and I know, by the way, for those of you who watch this show, you know this, and for those of you who don't watch, you don't give a shit. So I'll get through it really quickly. But there's this like one-to-one -one, um, character creation that with Sex in the City, where Carrie and Hannah are the same character. They are both writers who have moved to New York City, who have really complicated lives and are unsure about their own you know romances and their own position in the world and what they're supposed to be doing with themselves and you know their roles in society and i mean this is the same exact character essentially um and then we have the charlotte shoshana character who's the young princess we have miranda the lawyer and marnie who's the young directed girl and the interesting thing about I, I like here is that you know marnie is very directed she knows what she wants just like miranda did except she is now unemployed and sort of um not quite sure what to do with all that energy and all that direction so, and, and then we finally have Samantha and Jessa. Now, Samantha, I don't want to use the word horror. I don't want to get into slut shaming on the podcast. Let's just say that Samantha on Sex in the City was a woman who felt free to explore sexual opportunities at an advanced age. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that Jessa is not a necessarily incredibly sexually adventurous person, although I think that there's been some comments about experiences that she's had that makes it seem like she's pretty much up for anything. But... And the interesting thing is that her version of that is that she wants to live life to the fullest and is not bound by the restraints of normal society or behavior. She doesn't care about having a job. She floats into a marriage where all of a sudden she gets married to this dude who, you know, just completely randomly. Um, and then she leaves town and just leaves for the last couple of episodes. Um, so she sort of treats life the way that Samantha treats sexual opportunity. And I just find that really interesting because all these characters are so unique. And 
this is what I talk about when I talk about writing screenplays, where you need to start off with sort of the base, the foundation of something that works. They figured that out. They didn't have seven girls. They didn't have three girls. They have four girls, all of whom are sort of a skewed version uh, and younger version of the women on Sex and the City. And the cool thing about that is that then they can go and use these characters and explore these characters as individuals. They don't have to say, well, what did Sex and the City do? But as sort of the foundation, it is there. And, you know, this is not something, um, it's not like they had to buy the rights to Sex and the City in order to do it. This is how you create a TV show. Or if you're writing a feature film, how characters operate in features. So, um, fun fact I want to talk about real quick. I'm working with an Italian director on his screenplay. It's a couple hours a week uh, that I talk to him and give him feedback. And the coolest thing is that um, he has found that by writing in English some of the stuff that you know he's sending to me, he is creatively accessing some sort of new areas of the brain. Meaning that there's ideas that are coming to him and it's sort of a different process for him creating story and moving the story forward in a different language. So for those of you who can or have, have the ability to write and speak in a different language somewhat fluently, um, and again, you know, this is something, again, I couldn't do this. I can't speak any language. That's why he's got to speak in English. But um, in the case that you can do that and you're facing writer's block, try it. Try writing a page or two in a different language that you know and maybe some other sort of, maybe your own brain will become unlocked. I don't know, I just found that really interesting and something that he found kind of interesting also. I got a, te uh, a Twitter tweet uh, about Skyfall and somebody said, I can't believe you're teaching Skyfall. Uh, actually, it was an email, I'm sorry. Uh, I can't believe you're teaching Skyfall because there were so many plot holes and I can't believe so many other people are teaching Skyfall because there's plot holes. Look, you can learn from anything. Any studio film is a movie. Studios deliver movies 99% of the time. You might not like the movie. You might think it's a shitty movie. It might have big plot holes in it. It might not be perfect. It could be as shitty as Catwoman, but it still counts as a movie. You have your hero. You have your villain. You have your love interest. You have sort of an arc. You have, I mean, there's all these elements that are in play with professional films. Skyfall is great. Uh, Purvis and Wade, I think, did the first draft, and then uh, John Logan, who's one of the greatest screenwriters in Hollywood history, uh, wrote the final version of it and got credit on it. And um, yes, there are massive plot holes. The thing though is that they set up that there are going to be massive plot holes at the very beginning of the movie. It's purposely done, where initially James Bond is having a fight on top of a train that's on top of a bridge over water. He gets shot, falls off the roof of the train into the water. We see him sinking and we get the opening credit sequence, which is all underwater. Um, and then we see that he's presumed dead, that they're having a funeral for him at MI6 and all that stuff. They write his obituary. And then we see that he, no, he's really hiding out somewhere on a beach, uh, having sex with a beautiful woman and going to, spending his night in bars drinking. How did he get out of the water? How did he get out of the water? There's a bunch of these things that happen. There's an incident with a train, with a, a subway, uh, where the villain explodes a, or sets off a detonation that has this uh, subway car come down into the sub-level where James Bond has cornered him. Um, how would he know where this was going to happen? Where James Bond was gonna catch up with him? Um, you know, theoretically, if his plan had gone a little bit better, he, they, he would have never met up with James Bond, he would have escaped. 
Um, and then the villain, how does he even get the hell out of his cell? He's put it in this Magneto-like cell, and he just escapes. We know that he has access to the computers in MI6, but even so, it's still, uh, it's something that they don't tell us everything. And that's sort of part of the operating procedure of this film. Uh, and could any other film get away with it? No. No other film could do what, James, what, what they've done with this James Bond movie. It's James Bond. I mean, like, James Bond is James Bond. He's the he's unique, and it allows us to believe that he figured something out. Um, although the train thing, again, to me, was a little bit ridiculous. But, um, you know, there's and there's some other plot holes. Why doesn't he kill M while she's at headquarters? Why doesn't he blow her up when he has the chance? Why does he tease her for so long, um, you know, and threaten her and go through all these motions of... of you know, presenting these threats when he could just get rid of her immediately. It, none of it makes sense. But th this is how this film operates. John Logan's one of the greatest screenwriters ever. And do not try to replicate this in your own script. You cannot have plot holes of this proportion. It's only because it's James Bond that we are willing to suspend disbelief and, you know, suspend extreme disbelief. Uh, because we know that James Bond is basically a superhero, which is one of the reasons I have some issues with the franchise. I wasn't a huge fan of the of the Pierce Brosnan movies, even though I thought he was really good in the role. Um, and I, you know, I, I haven't seen Quantum of Solace. I really like Casino Royale. If you haven't seen Skyfall, you, it's gorgeous. Roger Deakins is one of the greatest cinematographers who has ever lived. He shoots all the Coen Brothers movies, and he has shot Skyfall in a way that is just eye popping. So um, moving on. I want to let you know that if you're interested in taking a screenwriting course with me and you're not in Los Angeles, email me. I'm going to put you on a list. I'm trying to figure this out. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you should do a course online. And what would that be? Would that be me? You know, I, I have to figure out a way to do it um, because part of my process is interacting with writers. I like that. This podcast is great for what it is. But, you know, to me, writers learn a lot more when you challenge them on things and when, you know, you get them to reveal what they haven't thought about and when they say the word kinda and then I can jump down their throat and say there is no kinda in screenwriting. You have to be clear on what you're doing. Anyway, um, and, and I also like the interactions between the writers and I like at throwing questions out there and getting that feedback and interacting and discussing and letting the class be a lot more organic so that you can teach somebody to think like a screenwriter as opposed to just sort of presenting tons and tons of information in a one-way audio or video delivery, which is sort of what this podcast is. So that's why my class is different, and uh, I want to figure out a way to do it online. So email me if you're interested in taking a course online with me, and if I can get a couple people together and we can figure out a time to do it via Google Hangout, then um, we, I will try to put together a course, and that's something that will be upcoming in the future. But if you're in LA, whenever you're listening to this, I'll probably still be doing the class, and you know it, it sort of repeats every couple weeks, every six weeks. So if you missed it last time, you can take it this time. Um, and that's at the Director's Playhouse in West LA. You can go to directorsplayhouse.com, check out when my next class is. My book is available for download on Kindle, or you can buy a print copy at thestarterscreenplay.com. You are buying it directly from me, so you're helping the podcast. I will personally autograph the book for you. That is so exciting that my signature would be on the book. I mean, that's great and everything. Oh, and my mom says that it's the greatest screenwriting book that has ever been written. So starterscreenplay.com, 
uh, print copy of my book. Free shipping, by the way. Free shipping in the United States and reduced shipping Canada worldwide. We're actually lose money on the shipping. It's more expensive than what I charge. Um, and also, you can hire me to read your script. I'm going to continue to charge $2.99 to read your script. You can, I, I was running a special last month. I'm going to extend it. So you can just make payment for a rewrite consultation and email me a script that I've never seen before. It's not a rewrite consultation. You're paying me to read your script. I'm going to do notes on it. And then we're going to talk about it on the phone or Skype for about two to three hours. Um, Here's a fun thing that happened I get to tell you about real quickly today. And this is why I recommend the $99 concept consultation because I had a client, Eric, who's awesome, who really has jumped into all the educational opportunities that are out there that I suggested after um, his first consultation with me a couple months ago. And he also has been voracious about reading scripts, which is what you should do. I mean, he is somebody who, I wish more clients would keep coming back and saying, hey, send me 10 more scripts. Eric does this. But here's the thing. Um, he didn't do the concept consultation. I told him at the time, hey, come back with it for a concept consultation before you write the next script. And he wrote a script that unfortunately is a horror script that has some similarities to an episode of Doctor Who. And he gave me permission to talk about this. There is one of the greatest episodes of Doctor Who, and I'm not a, I wasn't a Doctor Who person until somewhat recently. I'm watching him on Netflix. But a friend of mine, when I said what, I, I was at his place, uh, my friend John, and I he was telling me about Doctor Who, and I'm like, okay, show me like a great standalone episode. And he showed me season three, episode 10. If you have Netflix, it's the new Doctor Who series, season three, episode 10. It's called Blink, and it's fucking awesome. And it's a it's sort of a similar to the concept that you know we were talking about in this script but the script had already been written and he didn't sort of do all the fun stuff that this episode did and if he had just come to me for the concept consultation i could have immediately said oh my god you're talking you have to watch this episode and then let's talk about how to take it to the next level because this is just a 45 minute or 50 minute episode and you're writing a feature film and there's other elements that you know let's talk about how we can we can use what's already been done and figured out with this type of monster and um you know it didn't happen so we're we're left kind of talking about it and i just feel like the concept consultation if you haven't written it yet is a great thing to, it's, you gotta talk about it with somebody, why not talk about it with me? Okay, um, so I have a question that came over Twitter and then I'll get into Wreck-It Ralph. Um, should you reference script contests and queries? Okay, actually no, this was not a question. Sorry, I take it back. Somebody had semi-finalist in this contest in their Twitter uh, description. And the thing that I, shared with Twitter and then got some feedback on was that I said you should not reference the fact that your script was a semi-finalist in a contest. Um, I say this in my book and I have a really nasty snarky way of putting it in my book and my book is not in reach right now so I'm not going to start diving into it but I, I said something to the effect of all you're saying is that your script is better than a lot of other people who could afford to write a check because that's all that you know basically that English language proficiency knocks out a lot of people at the beginning. So any script that's even remotely passable as beginning, middle and end, um, you know, would become a semi-finalist. And I, I, the, the point of this is do not, unless it's like the nickel fellowship or something or uh, a absolute top contest, like one of, if it's not one of the top two or three contests, do not mention it's a semi-finalist. Because here's the thing, 
I've actually been reading a lot of um, scripts and a lot of my clients have placed in contests. I wish more of these people, you know, the problem that I have, this is why I don't like contests. By the way, I have worked as a contest judge. I have to, I'm, I want to talk about that more. I got to talk to the guy who runs the contest to see if I'm allowed to talk about it or mention the, the contest by name. But um, I've, I've done that work and I'm cool with it. I'm not saying you shouldn't enter contests. I don't think you should enter a thousand of them. And I don't think that you should submit multiple scripts. I think you, you know, take your best script, put it out there, one or two scripts, that's it. You do not have eight great scripts on the shelf. And if you don't know which your, one of your scripts is the best, then you shouldn't, you know, you should be dealing with somebody like me who can tell you, or, you, you know, you, you have some more work to do uh, in terms of your ability as a writer. But um, in the case with these contests, my problem is that it gives a lot of people pats on the back when in reality they need the kick in the ass. And a lot of the, all of these semifinalists, if they don't, if a script doesn't get further than semifinalists, my theory that I'm putting out there is that there is so much work that you have to do with yourself as a writer. And I don't know where you get that. I know that you can get it with a script consultation with me. I, that's what I try to do with writers, or you can take a class with me. Um, but there, and look, there's other people you can hire too. I'm sure many of you have hired people who are not Adam Levenberg, so I'm not just talking about me here. But, um, you know, the thing is that a somewhat passable script that rises to the level of professional should be doing better than the semi-finalist scripts. Um, it, it really needs to get into the finals. If you want to say you were a finalist, and by the way, who the fuck is paying attention? I, I want to just throw this out there. You're an idiot for putting semi-finalist on a query letter or in because why not just claim you were a finalist do you think somebody's going to go back and check this is not a job interview you are not legally responsible for what you're putting on your resume here this is hollywood you say what you need to say so personally if i were sending out a query letter i would pretend like i was a finalist in a bunch of contests or whatever um or won a bunch of contests and i'm again i because i'm not recording over this i probably would have gone back and edited that out but that's the reality of how smart people operate and if i haven't told this story in a couple of episodes maybe i never told it my friend who i won't name at the moment um when he was 18 and sending query letters out he started that early um I was working for a literary agent, I'm sorry, I was interning for a wonderful literary agent named Anne McDermott, and uh, maybe I'll have her on the show sometime. She's now a manager, and she's awesome. Um, but in any case, so I met this friend of mine, who I'm still friends with, you know, uh, 15 years later, uh, through query letters, because I called him based on his awesome query letter. And it turned out that he had not, he had written several query letters, and was sending them out to see which script he should write. I just love that story, that he hadn't written any of the scripts yet. He's like, why would I write a script if nobody wants to read it? Um, that is the lesson that this 18-year-old figured out that many writers never get to that point. And that's why I wrote a book called The Starter Screenplay. It's all about what is the script that somebody actually wants to read. Um, and he then went and wrote those scripts. And by the way, they weren't that great um, because he was an 18-year-old writer who was exploring the medium for the first time but he did get some really great mentors who were top screenwriters, a husband and wife team, kind of took him under their wing. And it took him years, but he's now uh, writing and directing and doing really well for himself. So uh, that's something we can all learn from my friend circa like 15 years ago. All right. Wreck-It Ralph. Okay. This movie is awesome. I saw it in theaters. It blew my fucking mind. I could not believe the way that this story sort of inter 
just the weave, the story weave, if you will, is so exceptional. Now, the thing about these movies, and I talk about these as Pixar films, Wreck-It Ralph was done by Disney, which is phenomenal that somebody outside of Pixar or DreamWorks Animation could deliver something like this. Um, the, the thing is that these movies are written by teams of hundreds of full-time employees. Tons and tons and tons of ideas are coming in. So, you know, if you come up with 30 of these ideas in a script, you're lucky. Uh, this movie has at least 150 interesting ideas. So um, you have to sort of take it with a grain of salt. Um, if you Real quickly, I want to talk about the legal issues with this because Wreck-It Ralph gets permission from Nintendo to use the Nintendo Game Controller. They use Bowser. Um, and I think there's some other elements that I'm forgetting at the moment, other Nintendo elements. They do not use Mario. And the fun thing is that Bowser was not on the poster. I was kind of disappointed in, in Nintendo because I thought, well, you know, if, if Mattel can license Barbie for Toy Story and Pixar can respect Barbie enough to sort of make it worth their while and make them not regret that decision and that it can even help sales, then why can't Nintendo participate? What I didn't realize was they probably just didn't have permission to put it on the poster or to use Bowser as part of the marketing campaign. Um, which is something that you can definitely do. I remember a movie, and I won't say which one it is, but I was at a production company, and there was a movie where we had somebody doing a cameo. Of course, if you know my background and everything, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the the studio was not supposed to, you know, that was part of it. Like, you can't market with this person's likeness because, you know, they're doing a favor and so forth. Um, so you can do that with, and I guess Nintendo did that, because when I saw the poster to Record Rap, I was like, fuck, why don't they have Nintendo in there? And I was so gratified to see that they did. Okay, um, so I, I want to talk real quickly about the opening of Wreck-It Ralph. The character Ralph is the villain in a game pretty much like Donkey Kong, where he destroys, he stands on top of the building, he throws stuff down, he breaks the windows, and then the actual uh, hero of the game is Fix-It Felix, which is the name of the game, and he runs around with a magic hammer that R Ralph points out that his father gave him, um, and fixes all the windows. And then at the end of the game, the townspeople get together and they throw Ralph off of the roof and they give a medal to fix it, Felix. Um, and, you know, immediately this film sets up, there's a couple of different worlds. There's the arcade, there's the world inside of Wreck-It Ralph. And um, we see this in the opening minutes. And we hear Ralph, we see Ralph going through the, the motions of this game. We see who his opponent is in the game, Felix. And he says, I see Felix up there getting patted on the back, people thanking him. So happy to see him all the time. Man, sometimes I think it must be nice being the good guy. So we're setting up his, his dream. Um, minute four, we see Ralph in a support group for villains. And they have a mantra that's great. And they're talking about the difficulties of going out there and playing one game at a time. This is like based on a 12-step meeting. It's like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, except it's a support group for villains. And somebody says to him, labels don't make you happy. You must love you. And then a zombie or a, another character rips a heart out of a zombie and says, it's inside here. And then he rips a heart out and shows it's, you know, presents it uh, in his hand that it's in your heart. Um, and the cool thing about this, this scene, besides the fact that you have this joke or play on Alcoholics Anonymous, is that um, we're getting out our theme at minute four. 
And that's something that I, I think is really important. Um, and seven minutes in, we see how this all works because Ralph leaves the meeting and we see how he, and the meeting is taking place in the Pac-Man world. And we see how he leaves the Pac-Man world and comes back into this terminal, which is like a, a train sta a giant train station. And instead of, uh, you know, hallways to the, each track, it's hallways to these individual games that are in the arcade. And we see how this world sort of has this central, grand central station and how, uh, how these characters move between games when they're off duty. Um, and we see how people react to Ralph. We see that they're scared of him. Um, that he's the monster. Uh, as he's walking through the terminal, pay, or minute eight, Sonic on a billboard or on a like advertisement uh, shares the rules. Be careful, if you die outside your game, you don't regenerate. Well, that's sort of the lesson that we learn because Ralph ends up in a different world as do many other characters and they have to be really careful because if they die in somebody else's game, they're done. Um, we have a save the cat moment minute eight or seven i forget i think it's about minute eight now remember save the cat moment is the moment where um generically a character saves a cat for an old lady just to show that he's a good guy even if he's kind of an asshole um in this moment uh we saw when when uh ralph was leaving the meeting he picked up some cherries from the pac-man game and he's walking around with these gigantic cherries and as he's coming back to his own game the gang from cubert the video game are begging they have a sign like unemployed like need money or whatever um, their game has been shut down and he gives them one of the cherries and he says, oh, it's fresh. It's, you know, fresh from Pac-Man. Um, so he does something nice for other people. I mean, it's such a ridiculously on the nose, save the cat moment at the mo the, at page seven. So I found that interesting. Um, nine minutes in Ralph returns to the Wreck-It Ralph game and there's a party and he's not invited and they're having fireworks and it's the 30th anniversary of their game and it's, they're having a party without him. And then he looks up into the, the penthouse and he sees that Pac-Man is there. And he's like, man, Pac-Man's invited and I'm not. Um, so Ralph goes up to the penthouse and he knocks on the door and everybody's like, oh shit, it's Ralph. And Felix comes outside. And we have two awkward conversations immediately where I, I want to, if you watch this film, I want to look at the dynamic of these conversations because I call it like the bridesmaids conflict. You remember the one upsmanship that um, Rose Byrne and uh, Kristen Wiig would have? where they kept, they'd have like these really awkward, you know, conversations between each other. Um, this is what they do where, you know, Ralph is like, huh, I really, wow, cake. I've never had cake before because I live in the dump and most people, cake isn't something that people really throw out. They tend to eat all of it. Um, and he like wants to be invited inside and Felix is not wanting to invite him inside, but they're both being really polite to each other. And it's this really interesting approach to conflict because all that's happening in the scene is Ralph wants to come into the party and Felix and the other people don't want him inside. But they're all sort of subscribing to this social etiquette that creates awkward conversation. And then we have that happen again. As soon as he gets inside, he starts breaking shit accidentally, which is why they don't want him there. Um, and they have a cake for Felix and um, Ralph doesn't understand why he can't have the medal and why his character is you know isn't on top of the building like everybody else is and he has this awkward back and forth where he takes the, his uh he has sort of a figurine that's made out of marzipan i guess uh where it's like in the swamp below the building and like he puts it on top of the building the other person goes no you belong down here and he goes no i belong up here and then of course the cake ends up getting splattered because that's his thing that he's a klutz um 
and he's told that bat, and he he takes the medal, the the marzipan medal off Felix, and says, "Why can't I get a medal?" And everybody goes, oh, and he's told, "Bad guys don't win medals. That's not what they do." And right there, that's the catalyst. That's our page twelve moment because that's when the world turns upside down. He's told bad guys don't win medals, and even uh, one of the characters says to him, and if you ever win a medal, you can have the penthouse. You can live in the penthouse. I'll give it to you, because you're never going to win a medal. That's not what you do. Um, and he decides that he wants to win a medal. Um, so we have this scene here, and then we go to, to Tappers, which I didn't even realize Tappers is a real game where you're like serving root beer floats to people. Um, so he goes to a bar, and he says, I'm not going back without a medal. And Tapper says, well, you're welcome to look through the lost and found. And now we're in the period of debate. How does Ralph get a medal as a bad guy? We're on page 14 now. Debate, how does Ralph get a medal if he's a bad guy? And then this guy runs in, in uh, and he's from one of these, uh, you know, uh, shoot em up games. And uh, he's a soldier with post-traumatic stress from, I guess, playing this really intense uh, game uh, like Gears of War. And he ends up uh, revealing that, oh, there's a medal, you know. Um, so Ralph steals this guy's outfit and enters the game, which is called Hero's Duty. And in this game, you fight off these cybugs. There are these bugs that are released and you shoot at them and then a beacon of light pops up at the end of the game to sort of capture all the bugs again. Uh, and the bugs just fly into the light and then sort of the process repeats itself for the next game. So Ralph ends up in this game by using a mask costume or fake identity, which is something that characters use in a lot of comedies in order to sort of gain access to new situations. He does that. And... Um, he learns that there's a medal at the top of the tower, and your job is to guide the player to that medal. But of course, we know Ralph's going to steal it. And one other thing that's set up here that's really interesting, when the game starts and the bugs are unleashed, it's so horrific, and there's so much violence and bugs flying around, and it's so terrifying to Ralph that he drops his gun, and the gun ends up being eaten by one of the bugs. And immediately, like, the legs of the bugs turn into semi-automatic weapons or automatic weapons. Um, so the bug is basically absorbing whatever it eats and turning into that. And that is set up for the end of the movie where our villain is eaten by a bug and we think that he's dead. And no, it turns him into sort of a super monster. Um, so in any case, we're setting it up here. Uh, and then um, we're establishing... Uh, oh, let's see. Oh, then in the Wreck-It Ralph universe, they start to play their game, but Ralph isn't there and the game doesn't work properly. So they put an out-of-order sticker on the machine, and if they don't fix the machine, or if they don't, if the community doesn't get Ralph back by tomorrow, or tomorrow morning, uh, the game is going to be retired. So that's like your first, like, uh, world is going to collapse thing here, where, where the world is not going to go back to the way it is unless, um, unless, you know, Ralph returns. And that is a great ticking clock. That's a great ticking clock, and it's one of two ticking clocks that this movie has. I think that's really interesting. Um, so around minute 25, Ralph is about to, he's basically snuck into this tower to steal the metal, and there's all these eggs around of cybugs, 
and he accidentally knocks one over and then he knocks another over and another over and his klutziness basically unleashes this swarm of bugs and he ends up falling into this like fighter jet with a bug and he's flying out of the game and Calhoun sees that there is a bug in his aircraft. She sees there's like a bug on it, you know, trying to eat his face or whatever and that it's escaped the game. And then the the plane goes through the terminal, through another portal, and ends up in the world of Sugar Rush, where he crash lands at minute 27, and we see the bug flies into like a, a big uh, lake of, you know, frosting or goop or whatever, and sinks, and we assume it's dead. So for, for Raph's purposes, this bug has died, and he's moving on, but he lost his medal in the crash. And now we are meeting uh, Vanellope, who is played by Sarah Silverman, and she is a kid of the world's sugar rush. She has a problem, which is that she's a glitch, or she has a glitch. And there's some question as to whether or not she's even supposed to be part of this game. Um, you know, she's basically a defective character. And huh, do you think that she's going to learn to embrace her glitch by the end of the game? Of course she does. So that's our first beast story. Second Beast story immediately is introduced. Calhoun, the Jane Lynch character, teams up with Felix from Fix-It Felix uh, in order, because she saw that the Cybug escaped and made it into the Sugar Rush world and knows that if the, if the Cybug replicates itself, it's going to take over the Sugar Rush world and then it's going to take over the entire arcade. The entire universe is going to collapse. So we have these two elements of... Um, of the world ending, uh, or a ticking clock. Uh, the first is the Wreck-It Ralph. If Ralph doesn't return to the game, they're going to be out of order, and they're, they're going to get rid of the game. And uh, the second one is that she says, this is the dialogue, Cybugs are like a virus. Once those Cybugs finish off Sugar Rush, they'll invade every other game in the arcade until, uh, or they'll invade every other game until this arcade is nothing but a smoking husk of forgotten dreams. And this is the second B story. The second B story is Calhoun and Felix as they are um, as they are sort of searching through the Sugar Rush game in order to find the escaped Cybug. And we give them a love story. Because if they're just on the trail of this thing that they're, you know, going to try to find out about, they're, or they're going to try to, you know, contain, um, we need to give them something else to do along the way. And I think that this is really interesting because, you know, Ralph's goal is to get a medal. And he gets that medal at the end of Act 1, but then he loses it in the plane crash in the Sugar Rush world, and Penelope gets the medal, and she uses it for her own purposes to enter this contest, and um, Ralph has now, unless Penelope wins the contest, his medal is gone. So he's got to help her win the contest. But we have this other ticking clock there that they completely don't tell Ralph about. Ralph doesn't know about it, and we put Calhoun and Felix on the trail of this, and we give them a love story because the thing between Ralph, Vanellope's a kid, so they can't. Re they have this intense friendship, her and Ralph, but they can't have a love story. And I always say you have to have a love story. Well, this is how they do it. They give it to Calhoun and Felix, and. Um, there's a great line where Felix asks somebody, is she always that intense? And they say, oh, she's been programmed with the most tragic backstory ever. The one day she didn't do a perimeter check, the day of her wedding, cybugs invaded, they come crashing through the stained glass window at the church, they eat her husband, and she like grabs a gun and shoots the cybug. Um, but she lost the man of her dreams like that, and uh, therefore she is not ready for a new relationship, and Felix kind of has to push it a little bit. 
And it's interesting because she seems capable and confident of being on this mission as a character. She's a badass. She is at home holding a machine gun in her hands. Uh, and Felix isn't. He's, he, you know, he's got this magic hammer that fixes things. But he, he, you know, and she says, you can't come with me. Like, it's going to be dangerous and you can't die outside your game. Remember, they set that up with Sonic at like minute nine. But Felix says, no, I have to come on the mission because it's my job to fix what Ralph's wrecks. And I cannot ask you to risk your life cleaning up his mess. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that we have that conflict there where she says no and he says, I'm coming with you anyway. And then we have that love story. And then we have the third B story introduced immediately, which is the battle for control of Sugar Rush, this game. It's a racing game in a world of candy. Penelope enters the contest and that was something that was never supposed to happen because the world is run by the evil King Candy, who we'll get to meet. And he will later claim that if Penelope wins, or if she even places um, in the race, that she could end up destroying the entire world. And then we get another piece of information, which is that glitches are not allowed to leave games. So like the way that we saw that all these characters um, were going from game to game, the way that Ralph went to the Pac-Man game for his AA meeting, um, all that interplay between games, the one thing that you can't do is a character with a glitch cannot leave her game. And you know, this is the interesting thing about Wreck-It Ralph where there's constantly introduction of new expository information. And it is your job to sort of sugarcoat this stuff. It is toxic. It can really easily go wrong and it can really easily feel like overload. But if you figure out what your six or seven pieces of information are and you stagger them throughout the story, then every five or six pages you can come up with a new rule. And as long as you've established what that rule is, then we know it and we believe it. I mean, it seems very arbitrary. Why is it that all glitches can't leave their games? Well, it doesn't matter because if you tell us that before minute 40, we're not gonna question it in minute 86 when Vanellope is stuck in the world and they can't all just escape and blow it up because that's what they're gonna do. They're gonna blow up the Sugar Rush world um, and all of them are escaping and you know, there's basically this mass exodus out of the game and she's the one person who can't leave. And that's why Ralph has to go back and defeat King Candy because he can't allow her to die. Um, but it's beautifully set up and you know the mistake that writers make is they wait too long to, and they don't establish this stuff earlier. Uh, and it's funny, it's funny that I randomly started talking about girls at the opening of this episode because that's sort of what I was complaining about with that episode where all of a sudden she has this disorder and it just came out of nowhere. Here we have a completely arbitrary piece of information. A character with a glitch cannot leave their own game and we pay that off in Act 3 and we also turn her glitch into a positive. She learns to embrace it. Uh, there's so much good stuff in this movie. I've now talked about sort of the 3B stories and how it follows the Save the Cat model. Um, I, if you haven't seen it, I promise you will enjoy it. So check it out. Next week, I may talk about Sinister or Kick-Ass. I'm not sure. A reminder that eventually I will have a Color of Night full running commentary. It is a cool movie to check out, especially the first hour. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in taking my classes, uh, if you're interested in doing a Google Hangout class with me, I don't know what it's going to... I don't know what it's going to be yet. I don't know how it's going to work or when it's going to be, but email me so I can get you on a list and we can sort of all work together and figure out a good time for a bunch of people to get together and have a class. Because um, I can operate a class very much like I would in person on Google as long as there's only a couple people. Um, and then I do have a class in LA. Uh, we have some really cool people in it, uh, some really good writers. And, you know, it runs every couple weeks. And people drop into the class. Like, you don't have to start it when, I, when everybody else starts it. But it's, it runs every six weeks. So... 
uh, please go to directorsplayhouse.com, check that out. My book, Starter Screenplay, at thestarterscreenplay.com. Free shipping and handling for your autographed copy. You can buy the book on Kindle also. I think that's all for this week. Have a an interesting week, and I'll be back with a new show for you next week. Take care.